0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Have a fun one today. I have John Asher, and off the bat, John and I have known each other for quite a few years. And in fact, uh, John is the president and co-founder of Confidence, uh, of which Firepower is a significant shareholder. So I wanted to throw it out there so that there isn't any uh, uh, perceived conflicts. John spent his former life, most recently was the SDP of Finance and Chief Financial Officer of RSA Canada, worked for eight plus years at the cooperators, including Vice President of Finance. John uh, was started his career in at Urson Young, so I spent seven years there. First off, thank you very much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And you know, I'm, I'm very interested to learn about some of your previous experiences because, as you know, I've spent my whole life in kind of smaller businesses, and some of the insights that I've gained from you over the years have, have been quite interesting. But I wanted to start a lot earlier than that, and as I always do, I want to hear a bit about the origination story of uh of mr asher so maybe you can just give me the uh, the, uh the, the the cole's notes of uh of what that childhood looked like yeah
1: listen the cole's notes of uh mr asher are uh, very humble beginnings but uh, first of all thanks a lot for having me on here it's awesome i've been following all your podcasts so i'm, I'm super happy to participate but yeah man listen the, the the cole's notes of john asher was john asher was uh, the product of uh, some good farmers that had lived on uh, century farm for generation after generation and um, you know my parents were teachers educators mom was the mom was the guidance counselor dad was the principal of uh, of the school and uh, grew up in an environment where it was all about you know do the best you can in in school get the best grades that you can get go look for and work with some of the best people that you can and great companies that grow and I think probably the the story that's so different about me is that my focus was very much around the corporate side, you know, and you you kind of gave my quick summary there on the resume. It was all about make sure you're working with a great company that's got great growth prospects and work hard to climb the ladder as much
0: as you possibly can. And that was sort of the story at the beginning. So, so you you mentioned your parents or teachers. I mean, obviously that, that that's pretty far removed from, you know, what you do today. And you grew up in a, like a farming community. How do you think that shaped you? And, and why do you think you had, um, you know, kind of the confidence to go out and start a career or something totally foreign?
1: Yeah. So it's a good question. Um, so I think what my parents did for me was one, a really wrong, really strong appreciation for education and self-taught education, not just you know, making sure you're doing the right assignments the right way, but to actually make sure that you're you know, truly understanding problems, truly understanding where the issues are, and truly kind of understanding how to put together a solution. Uh, so that was kind of the base. But I have to be honest, it didn't really set me up to be entrepreneurial. That came, I think, a little bit later in life. I think what my parents did is they really did instill that kind of hard work. Uh, ethic, you know, and and spending a lot of time, again, being on a farm, like you do realize that yeah, you got to put in the work, Uh, you know, cows don't milk themselves, hay doesn't bale itself, Uh, you got to put in the work if you actually want to see output. And the second thing to that is, look, when the cows get out, they don't put themselves back in the pens, you got to go and you got to do it yourself. And so you might be trained and thinking about one thing, but you gotta go and do that hard work. And, and that really kind of carried through, uh, through through everything that I did. I think the stuff that I'm doing now though, that, uh, that I really love is that, you know, listen, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, trying to be entrepreneurial, trying to start a business, how to grow a business, how to build a business. Um, I have to be honest, I, I learned most of that little part in working with the guys at Firepower uh, and yourself, but also looking and watching and seeing how companies that I've worked with or worked for or acquired in the past, uh, how they did it. So one of the pieces that was probably the most transformational is like, I, I did the accounting bit. Uh, I wasn't very good accountant. Uh, sorry to all the people at Ernst & Young, that's uh, no fault of your own. You trained me very well, but that wasn't really a, a big passion. When I was doing m and activity and we were acquiring on behalf of cooperators in RSA either companies or books of business or new distribution. It was working with those vendors, like understanding what they were doing, you know, and and, and a lot of it, you know, as you're doing diligence and you're trying to understand where cash flows are and how the business works and all those sort of good things. It was just simply talking with these business owners. Like, how did you build your business? You know, what was the big change in your life? And the thing that was like so exciting about it was you know, these guys had like such passion for their business and how they grew grew it into what it was today. And for them, it was really important around legacy. Like how does the business evolve and uh, post acquisition? It was those guys that uh, that we met. They're the ones that really
0: sort of inspired me to want to try and do something totally different. Let me go back to that comment you made about self-taught. It's a really interesting concept because, you know, I've always said, and I've always told my kids that it's not about memorizing formulas. It's understanding why the formula actually does what it's supposed to do. What were some of the methodologies that you were taught, I guess, by your parents um, around how to self-teach? Because I think that that's a skill set unto itself. It's like the, the way to think about how to learn through that lens is quite unique.
1: Yeah. The Well,
0: I'd like to say,
1: so my strengths were always math and science. Those were, those were always my big strengths. You know, I was fortunate in that I always thought math formulas made sense. I always thought they were really quite logical. And so it was whenever you noticed a pattern or something that didn't fit right, that's where I would always go and focus and concentrate, like in a problem where something just didn't make sense, recognizing what it was and then focusing on it to understand why it's not making sense. And then ultimately what the problem is. Funny enough, it was always subjects where you had interpretations, so accounting and law where you could see and feel the influence of you know, the people that were setting those policies or setting those laws and, and the flavor of whatever might be going on in the day to sort of uh, change them. Those were actually always the, the subjects that I always found the hardest. And so I'd have to really kind of go and understand like, why is this language here? Like, why, why are, What's the motivation and the drive behind the way that these things are existing? And then kind of once you were behind and understood the spirit and the intent of those items, then all of a sudden, the problems really present themselves, and you can kind of move a little bit easier through trying to create a solution. So that was kind of like the big thing. It's Just like what's what's driving behind this problem?
0: Absolutely, yeah. The 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 why is so key. So so you you land up at at, uh, at Ernst Young. How did you get from farming community to Ernst Young? Tell, 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 tell me about that process.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a good process because I was so good at math, mom thought for sure I should go into math. Uh, She was the guidance counselor. She pushed really hard to make sure that I would go and do a degree that could somehow use math. I always kind of liked the business angle. So I I actually went to the University of Guelph. I did get a BCom there. It was a good school. It wasn't really a business school, um, but I, I really liked it. It followed the same kind of format as Western. But you know, it's funny that that farm community background to Guelph—that's like a natural little extension. Guelph is very much a, an ag biz kind of school. I didn't go for ag biz; I did go for BCom, but it was uh, it was a great school. How did I get to EY? Well, I think like anybody does—you use your network—and I had a great network of people who were all accountants, and they all kind of came to me and they said, "Well, what are you going to do with your with your BCom degree?" And uh, I really felt like. You know, going to Guelph, I didn't really feel like it had the. You know, it's not it's not Western, it's not Waterloo, it's not U of T or or Queens that might have the big sort of branding. So I really felt like I needed to do something else to brand myself and and you know, kind of get those qualifications to be, uh, you know, to be a little bit more insightful, have a little bit more skill, and that's why I wanted to do the uh, the CPA route and ultimately with EY.
0: So so you're at EY and you decide to move. Uh, I guess your first move was to RSA. So, you know, you, you mentioned that accounting wasn't for you. So, was that always in the in, in the cards? Like, did you know that eventually you were going to leave? No, I had no idea
1: I, when I um, when I started at EY. I really quite liked the partnership track. You know, you you come in to uh, to an audit firm. You come in with a group or a cohort of your sort of year or classmates. You study for your designation together. Graduate. Together and you kind of progress through the firm, picking your subject areas, your industries, and and uh, you know I picked I picked finance, uh, which I thought was great. The the best thing I liked about the firm was we always had a different client. Like if you were really interested in asset management, or you're interested about banking or insurance, you could pick any one of their clients and then get on those audits or get into those accounting uh, mandates and then learn and. I was kind of fortunate. I picked uh, intact insurance is the largest PNC insurer in Canada. Charles Brendamore was actually my audit contact and uh, who's now, who's now the CEO. And it was there that I really began to like sort of the corporate finance aspects of of being with a company. While I audited them, they went public for the first time with their 30% float. They acquired, it's got to be 16 to 20 different companies. They were in rapid acceleration uh, for growth and doing it mostly through acquisition. So the big positives there was talking with Charles Brendamore, understanding the strategy behind why that company was growing, where they were growing, how they were picking their customer segments, how they saw that there was an opportunity, not only in Canada, but now in the US. And it it was really at ground zero. And... That, that you could go in and you could talk with executives. Because here I am, I'm like a 23, 24-year-old student. And you're sitting at that executive table trying to understand, you know, tell me all the strategy behind why you need to go public at this time. Tell me the strategies around why you want to expand through acquisition. And I think it was that audit client, that moment that I began to realize that, listen, there's there's so many sort of exciting things that you can do that might be a little bit different than say audit or accounting. And it was at that moment that I realized I want to make a change. I want to be a part of this. I find this very exciting to grow businesses in, in that sort of MA way. Uh, and from there, I went and did an MBA. So again, I felt like I wanted to do a little bit more uh, on the education. Uh, and then ultimately got myself uh, a role at RSA
0: Canada in their corporate development group, Buy Side Mandate. It's really interesting because I, I, I know your background from the entrepreneurial lens. And I think a lot of people like to talk about big companies and how they're too slow and they're too this, they're too that. You, you mentioned, you know, some amazing learnings that you had whilst, you know, working at some of these larger companies, what do big companies do well? And how would you say they can help someone? Because I think that people rush into entrepreneurship too, too, too quickly. I think that having some real life experience and, quite frankly, in some larger companies doesn't hurt. I think you, I think you can learn a lot of incredible skill sets that could be utilized when you're looking to scale, you know, an earlier stage company. So 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 what are the things that you would say big companies do these things really well? Or from your experience obviously with RSA, the cooperators, et cetera? I think the okay so big company.
1: But let's um, let's think about uh, what you can sort of muster and and take away from it. Not all big companies are created equal. But the one thing they always have is resources. So whether that's, so let's let's hit all three, money, people, time. So they have the capital that if they want to be entrepreneurial themselves, or they want to move into new market segments, or they want to add distribution, they have the resources to be able to do it and to do it well. So that's the money piece. The people, again, if they want to do something different, or they want to expand market share, they'll bring in... The right kind of people with long detailed experience to do it so you're not working with you know you're not working with somebody who's trying to do this on the side of their desk you're going to be working with marketing experts you're going to be working with product experts you're going to be working with distribution experts to bring best-in-class practices in to now do your to do, do your new venture and time uh i think what's really nice about a large firm is that your schedule will be cleared to focus on one thing and to do one thing very, very well. And you know, resources become so critically important, money, people, and time to dedicate to actually doing quite well. So that's that's the real positive. But the the flip side to that is big company move slow, hard to make decision that can be true that can very well be true especially if you're trying to do something totally new totally entrepreneurial because i think when big companies as they move from not super high fast growth mode but they move into asset preservation mode especially public companies you know it would be it would be pretty hard for a company to make a huge pivot on a new strategy without involving a lot of people to make sure that everyone's coming along now having said that Sometimes I feel like Elon Musk kind of does that on the fly through Twitter with his billion dollar companies. But, you know, for the most part, he's a a different beast. He's a totally different beast. He's he's kind of rewriting a lot of what being a big company is. But, you know, in his early years, when he wanted to be, you know, move fast, do things quickly, he had the momentum uh, behind him to be able to do that And, and maybe not so much to lose. Now that these companies are all established, like he's got to maneuver himself a little bit more accordingly. So that was the big thing about big companies, and and the other thing too that I really liked about them was like if you have a great idea, and you want to pursue it, it's not uncommon to really grab the attention of executives to say, okay, I'm going to give you a leash. It might be a very small leash, but I want you to go and try and explore it, because if you know you are successful, this is now a multi million dollar new business that just
0: emerged. Out of nowhere.
1: So it's, you can kind of well, like you know, fast it's, track.
0: It's, that's really interesting because people don't talk about the ability to be entrepreneurial even within some of these large organizations. Like I know you did some pretty novel things when you were at the cooperators in RSA, and could, you know, people underestimate how how one can actually build a startup within a large organization. Absolutely. Cooperators, we had a
1: very sort of uh, smaller wealth management line. And we saw what was going on and the trends in the market. We saw how different insurers were capturing wealth management as a big part of their their, uh, their PL. And we took what was you know a good line of business and we grew it. It became the fastest growing business within the company. And all of the same things that we're trying to do now within confidence we were doing back then. you know how do we get our marketing right? How do we get our product right? How do we get our processes correct? Uh, and then to grow? Yeah, and I think those things happen. Time and time again. It's actually the big companies that, uh, if they don't encourage entrepreneurship within their companies, they're slowly going to die because there's no new product. There's no new innovation. It has to be there. Uh, it just, it's different. It's a different set of, it's a different bet that you're taking, uh, when you're trying to make that, uh, entrepreneurship, new business, new, new, new product
0: sort of uh, ambitions within the company. So John, you could have spent the rest of your career in a corner office and had a very nice, uh, you know, fulfilling life, and then you decided to torture yourself and uh, move into the world of uh, of startup tech. So, so tell me about that decision. I've gotten to know you over the last few years, but you know, the the reality is, I don't think we've even ever had this discussion of like, why? Why did you do it?
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's two things. The first is my corp dev days. I absolutely loved. I really loved them. I thought they were awesome. You got to meet some of the coolest people that were growing businesses. And, you know, it was fun. I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's a whole lot of fun spending somebody else's money. Uh, and especially if it goes well, right? Because then you can say, look, I was a part of that. I brought this company in and, and things are growing and progressing. And that's all good stuff. Every time we went to one of these, every time we would always do a closing dinner. Right, and we would, and then we would also have like the the check presentation as well. I always thought that was a really cool kind of thing. You know, make sure that I, I give you the check if I can hand deliver it. I would, if not, I do like a party right after the wire transfer went through, and you know, it was really a kind of a fun moment where you know the deal is done and you kind of celebrate. But I also began to recognize that these check sizes got larger and larger and larger. And I was like, well, there's there's somebody on the other side who has grown a business and is now selling for me and my group to now take over and continue to run. And I always in the back of my head was like, could I do this? Could I be the one who is growing that business to ultimately hand it over or, or building that value? So that was always kind of gnawing in the back of my head. The other thing, and the other person that I'll give a lot of credit to was actually my father-in-law. My father-in-law is a serial entrepreneur. You name a business, you name an industry, him and his brothers have started something, sold something from long-haul trucking to construction to merchant banks. They've done it all, casinos, everything. And they he would come to me and say, John, I don't understand why you work for somebody else. And I said, oh, but you don't understand. Like, yeah, you don't understand. There's risk. You got to de-risk. And he goes, well, what do you do every day? And I said, well, I make sure that things don't go bad. He goes, right, you're de risking billion dollar companies every single day. Why don't you feel you couldn't do it yourself? You know, it was a good question. I was like, well, no, but you don't understand. Like it's totally different when it's your own money. And he goes, well, yeah, but the flip side is you're working for yourself. You get the reward as opposed to the large company. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I thought about that a lot, but it was, it was really hard. Okay, so i would always spent, you know, my time within a big company with the security, right? The security of a paycheck, the security of a bonus, the security of benefits. And so to leave that was, it it felt very scary. I'll be honest. It felt really scary. And so the environment then for me to do that, I felt had to be right. And I fortunately have uh, my wife. She has a great job, stable sort of income, all those sort of great things. And, And we finally had this kind of moment where, you know, I, not that hitting forty means anything, but you know it's a little bit of a bit of a milestone where you start to think, what do I want to do for like the second part of my career? And I really felt like if I was ever going to like take more risk as a family and and for my own career, like maybe this is the time. Uh, this is the time to actually go and do it. And there's no like right, really right time to do these kind of things. So it just it was a feeling. Of okay, I'm going to take the risk, and we had a long discussion. And my wife is also an accountant who is pretty risk adverse uh, as well. And we decided, okay, we're going to do it. And um, so that was the deciding factor. And then it was okay. Well, now what do I what do I find is valuable and, and important for me to be able to make that jump? And and, and I got invited in to meet you and, and your group uh, through matrineer uh, who's the CTO for for confidence? And uh, you know I don't know if there was secret sauce or if it was just more of like a comfort level, but being around other people that had long experience in building businesses, around business, I felt to be a bit of a security blanket of okay, well, there's there's some other people here that we can sort of I can work with who have had some of these uh, the tiger stripes, uh, the learnings and and those kind of things that they can share. And that are also in the right mindset of, look, we know we're taking a big risk and this is either we're going to, you know, we want to build a big business and we're going to take those bigger risks to make sure that we can be successful. So, you know, what was the big question? What was the turning point? Yeah, I, I don't know. It was the it was the drive to want to do it myself, you know, prove to myself that we can do it, uh, surround myself with some people that um, that had been there before to lessen some of the scariness. and. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe hitting 40.
0: So, so, this company is my midlife crisis. How, how about that? Is that a good answer? <laughs> Perfect. So, 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 John, for those that don't know uh, what Confidence does, and you know, I know we lump it into this broader you know, prop tech, and I want to get your opinion on prop tech after this, but just briefly kind of describe what Confidence is and, and what you're trying to, uh, to solve and accomplish. Yeah, so Confidence is a
1: real estate brokerage, and it's dedicated for residential real estate investors. Our belief is that if you look at traditional tools, MLS, you look at the network of realtors that you have to work with, the investor really doesn't have the right kind of tools and information that's available to them to to successfully kind of buy real estate with having the entire marketplace at their disposal. And so we felt like there's a technology solution that can, one, show total access for anybody into the marketplace so that they can really understand where are the best investment opportunities in the market today and it's probably not in your backyard and it's probably not in the city that you're familiar with it's probably sitting in another city that you didn't know was uh, was available to you so that's what we do we use technology to uncover trends uncover pricing to do full financial analysis so that we can understand where those best properties are
0: and what's like the big audacious goal like where do you, where do you think that, that you know this type of tool can be utilized and how 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 large can you know can it get
1: so our big 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 ambition you could sit in any city and buy real estate anywhere on the planet and make sure that you're evaluating them all consistently so if i was a a capital allocator sitting in uh, in the UK, sitting in London, I'd be able to successfully buy portfolios of homes in Australia, in North America, wherever those houses and that sort of return might look uh, objectively attractive. We want to be like the Bloomberg terminal of
0: uh, of real estate. Got it. So prop tech. I mean, you know, I always get anxious when I hear buzzwords start being utilized too much, and prop tech is one of those. You know, I, I I think that anyone who's who touches real estate in any way and touches technology in any way likes to lump themselves into this idea of prop tech. What are you really seeing in you know the prop tech world? Like, what's actually you know getting traction, and what's you know complete BS for you know uh, no, <laughs> no 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 better verbiage. Well, it's funny you mentioned buzzwords because um,
1: I, I do remember uh, using a couple buzzwords when we would do. Uh, you know, town halls and stuff for, for staff. And I remember the big buzzword uh, about a decade ago was we're going to use big data to solve these uh, to solve these problems. And then we would go out and we'd say big data, big data is part of the strategy. And then we go back into our smaller circle and say, does anybody know what big data really means? Like, how are we, what are we going to do? And it's funny because now you hear new words like prop tech or, or whatever, uh, sort of replace that void. And, uh, and I always feel like, you know, every, every consultant will come up with the next term. What we're practically doing though is scratching the surface of some of those earlier promises of whatever prop tech or, or big data was. And that is to, and I, I'd love to say it's, it's even sexier than this, but it's, it's taking the data, cleaning the data, making sure it understands, making sure that those data points, like understanding how they relate to other data points. So that you can actually begin to learn something. Can you give
0: a real life example that will make it tangible for someone? Okay. So let me, let me make it tangible.
1: Let's say there's, let's say there's a house, two houses on a street. One faces, one's on the north side, one's on the south side. If I look at these two properties, I say it's on the same seat, on the same street. Everything should make sense. One side of the street might be in a different school zone than the other side. One side might be closer to hydro lines than the other side. And so those differences will have very, very different results when it comes to price or when it comes to the ability to rent that house, right? So if you're in a great school zone, that will be more attractive than if you're in sort of like a a secondary school zone. And so that one house will attract a bigger purchase price. It will attract more rent because it's in higher demand. So what we'll do is we like to go and find all of the school scores. So we understand where all the, the, uh, the, the top profile schools are understand their boundaries. And we'll take that data set and match it with a listing, which we will then geocode within those boundaries so that we can begin to understand, here is a basket of homes that are in a more high demand neighborhood than others. And so we've taken two disperse data sets, we brought them together within the system so that we can begin to assign value to a home. You simply would
0: not have gotten on MLS. Yeah. So there's a quick example. That's a great example. And I think what, what 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 people don't realize is that when it becomes incredibly multivariate with you know dozens, if not hundreds, of different variables, you know, how you really do need technology to help assist layering those data data sets.
1: It could be median income, it could be new construction permits, it could be. Church permits are actually like a, a super lead indicator for, for new, uh, new development. It could be um, schools, transit. It could be a, a whole host of other flood zones or, or whatever. All these different factors will impact housing differently. And so you got to be able to sort through very, very quickly, you know, how
0: do those data points impact the overall price of a home so you can then move forward. So, so the one thing that we have in Canada is that residential real estate for the most part has been an asset one one owns themselves and in other parts of the world. Like I know in uh, in the UK, as an example, the idea of home ownership isn't as like foundational in what you learn. Like as a kid in Canada, you learn like you want to buy your house and that's, you know, that's the investment vehicle where there's other places in the world that where institutions own a lot of residential real estate. You know, are you seeing that shift starting to occur in, in Canada? And is that is that ultimately what you think is going to drive the asset class moving forward? So that discussion is actively
1: happening right now in North America. Uh, institutional ownership of properties in the U.S. is happening, uh, and it's it's actively happening. To a lesser extent, it's happening already in Canada. The, you know, tons of questions, tons of talking points around, should that happen? Should it not happen? So at the end of the day, I think, you know, if you're asking me in Canada, will it happen? Whatever happens in the U.S. seems to find its way to Canada eventually. Uh, and so that will be here. It's funny, though, like this, this idea of grow up, buy a home. You know, I, I do own my own home. And so I, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. But when I bought my home, it was at a totally different price point than where house prices are today. And so there's an affordability issue. Uh, I think think there's been some really interesting kind of changes around the idea of home ownership. I really think it's an awesome idea to buy an investment property to get yourself on the house ladder, home ownership ladder. But I'm looking at more and more research saying perhaps you should just rent the home that you're in, uh, as opposed to actually owning it. And it's really interesting. Like, I think the ideas of what is home ownership are going to have to change simply because you know now homes are two, three, four million dollars uh, for the average family to be buying now uh, in the city of Toronto. And so things things kind of have to change.
0: So John, before I let you go, for those you know younger individuals that that really do I like the idea of getting into an industry like like prop tech or you know, no better other word. You know, what are some of the areas that you would recommend people start looking at more seriously? You know, to, to to enter that marketplace.
1: Yeah, so I think prop tech. I mean, it's it's a good question. There's there's tons of areas that people are starting to invest in, and there's there's probably two areas that are. Uh, most under fire. The first is Realtors Commission Structures, okay? That's a big one. You know, you're still looking at 4 to 5% commission for a listing and a cooperating agent. Uh, and so there's a lot of investment and in time and energy that has gone into trying to break that commission sort of cost for, for a seller. And there's lots of names that are involved in there. And they've all had sort of varying degrees of success, that's 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 a big expense and it's kind of an interesting one cuz you know house prices have grown 20 30% in the last year but yet that commission structure really hasn't changed too much so so a lot of a lot of energy time going into trying to disrupt that the second piece that i see a lot of disruption in is that whole how do i acquire like that whole chain like how do i make that process easier there's a lot of you know, information which is not available. Even though we have MLS, we can see listings, we can see sold prices. There's still a lot of stuff that happens in, I would call an inefficient market that can be automated, that can be improved. And so there's a lot of companies that are trying to pick apart that value chain of how do I actually close a property? Whether that's uh, uh, on the mortgage process side, there's a ton of new Digital online mortgage entrants that have come in to try and automate that whole process. Uh, on the legal closing side, there's a ton of new entrants that have come in to sort of make it cheaper, faster, better uh, for clients. There's been a push to try and improve the development side on the commercial side. So, you know, just in time inventory, labor optimization problem there is. Again, big problems to try and solve. An investment comes in on trying to solve just small little problems at a time. So this, this prop tech world, I don't actually think there's a real definition yet. Like The range of problems that people are trying to solve is so wide that there will be a tipping point. There will be a tipping point where these little smaller problems have been solved. These companies will come together and they're going to start to gobble up the bigger issues which is around find me a home, make it cost efficient to close this home, and make the process faster for me with more transparency. For, for the individual, you know, you can solve those
0: problems. So it's going to be a massive win. Well, John, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. For those that would like to follow along, uh, what's the best way that they can keep, keep up to date with what you're up to? I know you're on LinkedIn. Yeah, you can always follow me on LinkedIn. So John Asher on LinkedIn,
1: you can always contact us. Uh, you can always follow us on Confidence.com or, or follow Confidence through uh, through LinkedIn. And if you want to get on our mailing list, it's uh, hello at Confidence.com and uh, we'll give you all the market research that you can handle. John, really
0: appreciate it. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on a dealmaker's DNA where you can expect the unexpected.